If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. Welcome to the Strange Harbors podcast, a weekly discussion of film, television, and pop culture. My name is Jeff Zhang, and tonight I'm joined by Amir Toure and Derek Wong. So this week we are talking about director Todd Field's latest film, Tar, which stars Kate Blanchett, Nina Haas, Nomi Merlant, Mark Strong, and newcomer musician turned actor Sophie Cower. It is Field's third feature-length film and his first after a 16-year hiatus. His first two being 2001's In the Bedroom and 2006's Little Children. And this movie has a lot of awards buzz going on. It's actually picking up awards as we speak at the Gotham Awards. So I think it already picked up screenplay there. Oh, nice. And a lot of buzz for Oscars. It is the undeniable frontrunner for Best Original Song, Apartment for Sale, <laughs> performed by <laughs> Lydia Tarr. Okay, all joking aside, but I think there's a lot of acclaim for Kate Blanchett for this movie. I saw this at New York Film Festival a month or two back. What about you guys? When did you guys see this? Uh, I think I saw it last week. I tried to see it in theaters, but mm -hmm. I guess it must have been pretty popular the one night I went to go see it because I could not even get a seat. So I ended up just streaming it at home on Amazon. This one was actually doing pretty well. A lot of places were sold out of screening, so yeah. Other way to watch it is on Amazon, so you can do that if you don't want to brave the theaters. You can rent it. Um, what about you, Derek? I saw this, well, maybe almost three weeks ago, maybe? So it's been a while for me. But yeah, I actually did get to see this in the theater, but my theater was not full. It was quite empty. But that's like all my showings. Are you guys familiar with Todd Field at all? 
I was looking at his filmography and uh, no. <laughs> the short answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've seen anything from him or anything he's written. So uh, very not familiar with Todd Field's work. Yeah, I'm with uh, Derek. I'm a Todd Field virgin as well. Uh, his stuff is really good. Both his movies in the bedroom and Little Children are really good. And I think it's a testament to his prowess as a director because like, those movies were both obviously very well regarded. And he only made those two movies. And then when he disappeared for like 16 years, everyone's like publishing think pieces. Where the fuck did Todd Field go? Like, when's he going to give us another banger, you know? Where did he go? There were a lot of projects that just didn't take off. Like, he had some collaboration with Jonathan Franzen that didn't work out. Uh, a bunch of stuff. Cormac McCarthy, he was going to adapt Blood Meridian. Oh, wow. But that never worked. He also co-wrote something with Joan Didion that didn't work out either. So, a lot of stuff that just kind of never took off. And then, now he's back with Tar. So... Yeah, so I'm actually very curious to hear Derek's thoughts on this movie, because <laughs> it, it has things in it that I feel like he usually bristles against, namely, like, ambiguity and an unlikable protagonist. So I want to know what you thought of this movie. Sorry, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Maybe I should have seen this coming. Um, no. <laughs> but I ended up loving this movie. I had no expectations going in just because, like, I didn't know Todd Field's work. and. The only thing I've really seen from this movie is, you know, one, hearing a lot of the praise, but then two, it's mm -hmm. just kind of the still or the poster of this movie. So I, I knew it had Kate Blanchett at the center of the story, and she was a composer. Uh, I mean, looking at the poster again, I mean, she's holding, I don't even know what that thing's called in her hand. The baton. But, you know, uh, the baton. Yeah. So I was like, okay. Composer so slash conductor. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. So I just kept hearing good things about it. So I gravitated toward it and I really wanted to watch it. And one thing I really admired about this movie was that he wasn't sympathetic towards her character of Lydia Tarr, but at the same time, I didn't completely think he was villainizing her. And I think ultimately, and this is kind of a spoiler to say this, it's just about like the destruction of someone's life, right? The implosion of someone's life. Absolutely. And what I really loved was that the beginning of this movie does not feel like that at all, right? At first, it almost begins as like this story about this person who's going to like the peak of her career, right? Like she's at the peak of her career and like she's about to do this unheard of thing in conducting. And then it's just turned slowly into, like I said, this implosion of her life. And just watching that, I thought it was just super fascinating. I do agree. I think painting her as like hero or villain is the entirely wrong way of looking at this movie. Although I feel like there's no like real wrong way to look at this movie. I think that's where the beauty of its ambiguity lies. I don't know. What, mm -hmm. what did you think, Amir? I liked it, but I suspect not as much as the two of you did. I think the screenplay, the writing was fantastic. It was really well directed. The dialogue's amazing. Kate Blanchett is incredible, I thought. Mm -hmm. um, she's really, really convincing. I'm not someone who knows any conductor composers in real life, but it had the feeling of her similitude. Like, this struck me as how someone like that would talk and act. Like, I totally bought it. It's totally believable. It's so believable. You're like, oh, is this a docu-series about, like, a real person? Mm. There were a bunch of opinion pieces where, like, just so you know, Lydia Tarr is not a real person. Because <laughs> I feel like a lot of people come out of the movie and they're like, uh, is this like a real person? Yeah, I mean, it feels ripped from the headlines and it's yes, timeliness. Yes. 
and in the reality of the performance and in the reality of the dialogue. Um, and so it's excellent on those levels. Mm-hmm. I liked a lot about it. I think for me, uh, it feels weird to say it. I think it's well done, but I think the middle is a little soft. I think movies are just too fucking long these days. <laughs> mm-hmm. I liked this movie and I thought it was excellently done, but this is just another movie that's, I don't know, two hours and 40 minutes or something like that. Yeah, it's a pretty long movie. It is. I just don't know if I needed as much of the build up as I got. It was too many tick, 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 ticks up the roller coaster. And I was waiting mm. to come down. And when we did, I was mm. like, oh, this is great. I'm loving the collapse of her life. But I don't know if I needed as much of the buildup as I got because I kind of got it. I know where you're going. Let's see it happen. Okay, so I'm kind of with you. I think there's a lot of buildup. I don't know if I would cut any of it because I think everything is super yeah, compelling. Yeah, that's wrong to say. It's good. Like I almost feel bad saying that. But I, I'll yeah. also say like this being at two hours and 40 minutes, I feel like I would be lying if I said – I didn't feel its length a little bit, right? It I think feels long, man. It feels long. It feels long. And the middle feels a little... Soft. I agree. Yeah, soft. It's it's, just, it's subjective. I don't know, man. Hard subjective. This is how I feel. Really, how I felt. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't bother me as much, but I totally know what you're getting at. But yeah, I think this movie just absolutely does not work without Kate Blanchett's performance. Mm-hmm. If the actress or actor at the center of this movie cannot convince the audience that she is a master of her craft, a genius, and like a savant in some way, like it just doesn't work, right? Because I think it's asking what you would think about people who are very, very good at what they do and how much of the bad things that they do you can look past or forgive just because of how good they are. And without that performance, it just doesn't work, right? And I think. Just that 15-minute intro with Adam Gopnik. He's like a real interviewer for The New Yorker. And with that sit-down, like I think you get a good feeling of her genius, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole resume highlights mm-hmm. that you would do when you're introducing somebody of her caliber, and they, and they make it sound good. And they name drop all of these things where even if you're not in music, you're like, oh, I bet that's important. I bet that's probably one of the top orchestras. I bet that, you know, like it's, yeah. again, it has the feeling of reality, even though I can't fact check those things myself it's very believable in that role and i think the dialogue especially deserves note i think i've already mentioned it but we'll say it again or the screenplay is currently winning an award and i think Mm -hmm. justifiably so i mean kate blanchett carries such a huge load with the dialogue in this film alone lady atar talks a fucking lot yeah (laughs) she talks a lot and her dialogue is not simplistic she sells this as a very intelligent, thoughtful person who has thought about music and was thought about teaching. You see her do some teaching. She sells this as uh, someone who, as you said, is a, is a savant, is someone who's a master of her craft. And also an intellectual. Yeah, exactly. She comes off as a – you buy this person as an intellectual. It doesn't come off as phony. Kate Blanchett really sells it. I rewatched it with my wife, Ashley, and within the first five minutes, she's like, She's so fucking pretentious. <laughs> she's not wrong, right? Um, just that interview with Adam Gopnik, you can kind of see. But like, this movie's also about like control and ego. Oh yeah. And I think when people say this is about cancel culture and art versus artist, I don't like categorizing this movie as that because that's so like 
I don't know. When people talk about cancel culture, I feel like the discourse always makes people sound like bloviating morons, you know? So I don't think that's actually what this movie is going for. It's not going for like, oh, this timely treatise on cancel culture. It's not the female Me Too movie? That's not what's in the purpose of the movie? <laughs> uh, I mean, you could call it that, but I think it's more of like <laughs> ego and control and how prestige and acclaim and like the label of genius can make some person think like their actions have no consequence, right? I think that's a little more timeless way of describing the movie rather than like, oh, it's a cancel culture movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this movie is kind of like a Rorschach test. It unfolds these events in the story, like this implosion of this genius artist, and you get what you want from it, right? There's like no finger wagging. It's not like a polemic, which a lot of these movies, quote unquote, of the moment tend to do. And I really appreciated that about this movie. And I think it's kind of one of a kind in that regard. It's this camera as observer as this person's professional life just collapses around her, right? The thing I latched on to the most was like, I felt like there was no ultimatum here, right? With this movie, like the thing that he was trying to say wasn't like, oh, this person's bad and this person deserves what's coming to them, right? It's simply this person did not make the best choices with her power and these are the consequences. Absolutely. It felt like there was like a lack of emotion there, mm -hmm. which is really hard to do when you have someone who clearly is doing things that are immoral. Mm -hmm. actions are, are uh, against you know most of our better judgments and i think very hard to do that and like that's what i really really loved about this movie yeah and a lot of the bad things that she does they're inferred too um a lot yeah. of it's like hearsay a lot of it is just little bits of information but when they all come together it paints this portrait of someone and the film lets you make your own decision about the character I was going to say that distance and uh, emotionlessness is what allows the film to retain some level of ambivalence about Lydia Tarr and, and not judge her and just kind of present the situation. Absolutely, 100%. That reserve and distance is really important. And it's interesting. I don't think the film, it's not like it chooses a side. I think it's very clear that things she's doing are wrong morally, but it's not rubbing your nose in it or encouraging you to revel in her downfall. Yeah. You guys want to talk a little bit about the details of the plot here, just so that we can talk a little more freely about what we did and didn't like? Well, I was going to say, does someone want to give like a little synopsis first? Yeah, I haven't been spoiled enough already. We're going to talk more about spoilers going forward, so just uh, click off the podcast now and come back when you've seen the movie. So this movie is about Lydia Tarr, played by Kate Blanchett, and she is the first female chief conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. And like we said, the introduction at the beginning with Adam Gopnik's interview, I think is a very good like summation of her career. She has this upcoming recording of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, and she has this assistant, Francesca, played by Nomi Malant. She has this very tight control around her life. It follows her uh, around the world, basically, with her career and her conducting and her musical prowess and teaching class. And it follows these allegations by a former student where it's implied that she groomed her and then blacklisted her from the program, the conducting and the music program, and she commits suicide. The events kind of snowball and she's caught up in these allegations and then it 
follows her career spiral. So I think there are a lot of different pieces to this movie, but I would actually call it like a complicated movie. I think the characters are complex. I actually like all the supporting characters here. I think Nomi Merlant is pretty good as Francesca. And I think Nina Haas as her wife or partner, I don't know what their marital status is. Uh, she's incredible, actually. I think there should be more attention to Nina Haas for like best supporting actress. Just like the face acting that she does in like reactions to Lydia's actions, what she does with this new student Olga, played by Sophie Cower, and just the disappointment she wears on her face, that unraveling of the relationship. She does so much with so little. I think she's really, really fantastic. I agree with you. She was excellent. Like you said, a lot of face acting, a lot of like looks either at Lydia or around the room to be like, hey, what the fuck is she doing? <laughs> a lot of, and as you said, like hurt and shock and anger and disappointment. And uh, yeah, no, mm-hmm. she's great. She's totally believable as the wife of a bad man. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Lydia Tarr's obviously not a man, but she's sort of in that role of the, I don't know, the Skylar White or whatever, right? This is the, to take it to a place of TV. But she's the sort of uh, golden age of TV anti-hero's wife, right? Mm. If Lydia Tarr is Tony Soprano or whatever. It's interesting that you bring this up because I actually wanted to talk about this. I mean, I've listened to some interviews like Todd Field already talked about really wanting to delve into this world, but in a female perspective, having the Lydia Tarr character be the first, like you said, female conductor of a major orchestra and then a little unheard of in this world, right? But there are like clear allusions to like this idea that she comes off more like a man in this movie, right? Mm. Well, to that point, she calls herself Petra's the father. father. Yes, right? yes. And she's scaring mm-hmm. that girl. Yes. And then I think the way she is trying to curate her career at this moment, like I took notice to like the album covers she gravitates towards and tries to recreate, right? These famous male composer covers to be the, the same kind of pictures that she uses for hers. So like, it's interesting that he says that this movie's about like this female power in this movie. But then I did get very much sense that like, the character herself thinks of herself maybe as like a male, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said for her both like being the first of her gender and having to also fight against like gender stereotypical roles in order to fulfill that role. And this movie does not work nearly as well if she were not a woman, I think. I think there's mm-hmm. more of a thorniness when it comes to depicting women this way. And I think it makes for a more compelling character and it's more interesting because it's something you haven't seen before right yeah. i think if it's a man it's a it's a little boring and uh maybe it feels like it's an excuse yeah. or apologia which this doesn't feel like yeah exactly and also like if they had a man in this role it would have been too close to like probably the inspiration for this james levine right who's the music director for the metropolitan opera who's this famous conductor and pianist and he was fired over sexual misconduct allegations. He was world famous, um, mm. probably just as renowned as uh, the fictional Lydia Tarr is, right? Although Lydia Tarr has an EGOT, so let's not forget. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, they never let you uh, really forget how, how accomplished she is, right? And 
one of the touches that I fucking loved in this movie was the opening crawl of the credits. Yes. That started from the bottom up, which is completely That in didn't make theme. sense to me at first, but it yeah, yeah, totally right? makes sense. If the movie's about the overweening self-importance of the people who consider themselves great, then yeah. what better way to puncture that than by reversing the order of the credits? Especially in like a collaborative field like music or like film itself, right? To get like the least credited like caterers and production units and assistant editors and things to to have them come up first in the movie. Um, I feel like that's a powerful statement. Without like totally rubbing your face in it, I think it's an interesting touch. And I really, really like that. Really cool creative choice. I was going to say, I remember being in that moment. I was like, is there something wrong with my projection? Like, I thought there was something yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe they got it wrong. Like, they like happened to like start the movie at the end. And we were just watching the credits. And I was like, <laughs> I'll wait to the end of the credits before we figure out if there's something wrong. And then to then see it, oh, okay. And then now we starting to see like Kate Blanchett's name. And then we see Todd Field's name. And then it becomes very purposeful. Very much like the beginning. You know, typically when we see these credits, right? It's always like the stars come up first and then the director. And, and then it goes to like all the, you know, thousands of people that worked on this movie, right? Versus yeah. like the reversal here showing you that, no, the most important people are like the small yeah, names. Yeah, the below the line make up credits. This orchestra. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really powerful. And like, once you start thinking about it, it like gets you in the mindset of like what this movie is about. Mm-hmm. So, you want to talk about ambiguity? Um, I wanted to broach to you guys first. What is it you think the movie is like ambiguous about? Do you think her crimes are actually ambiguous or unclear? Because I think it's pretty clear. I don't think the crimes are ambiguous at all. I think the evidence mounting against her is just way too much for you to deny like that she actually did these things and i think the focus on like her surrounding characters where they all turn a blind eye or like they're all just raising eyebrows until that levy breaks like i don't think there's any ambiguity to like the horrible things that she's doing i mean it seems like she has a career pattern of sleeping with her subordinates and exchanging that for like uh, uh promotions in the orchestra right? or whatever yeah. yeah exactly yeah, yeah right it seems like that's something that she's had the habit of doing and she's called out on it rather explicitly by sebastian right mm-hmm. uh, the second conductor that she uh she's trying fires to replace go. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and he accuses her of oh you're gonna replace me with like uh francesca your assistant the implication being that she's sleeping with francesca mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. um i think it's pretty clear i don't know if you guys it is. It is. She's definitely sleeping with Francesca. So the thing that I'm not clear about is whether Francesca's like complicit in, I don't know, setting up other affairs. Because who is Francesca texting at the beginning and like at the end of the film? I got the sense that it was Olga. Oh. Because it's never explicit. Olga definitely knows more than she lets on because she's like live streaming the book press tour when Lydia takes her to New York, right? So she knows more and she's like making snarky comments behind her back too. So I feel like that's Olga. And I think oh, Francesca's maybe. like still in touch with Olga. So I don't so know. Francesca it's not very gives clear. Olga the heads up. Yeah, maybe. Like if you sleep with her, she still may not give you the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Francesca doesn't get the job she wants, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas Olga does. Well, that's why she turns on her, right? That's why right. she turns yeah, on yeah. Lydia, right? Because um, yeah, it seems like years of being her like professional lackey, and then also I guess sleeping with her 
yeah. it seems like it's not rewarded, right? What I was a little confused by was that after a while, like it then dawned on me that Francesca is the one in the beginning filming her, right? Like when she was like sleeping on the couch, talking to somebody. And then there's other moments where like she's working behind her back, right? Keep the emails. And then, mm-hmm. like you said, potentially having conversations with Olga. But the thing is, it does seem like the breaking point is when she doesn't get the job. So I was a little confused. Like, was she setting her up to expose her this whole time? Or was she just waiting to see if she was going to get this job first? And I, I think that's like part of the ambiguity. Like, I don't know where this character was. Yeah, maybe collateral for herself. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point of the movie, right? Like, the people surrounding these master artists and craftsmen, they'll only turn a blind eye until it's not beneficial to them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So yeah. I think that's kind of the point the movie is making. Yeah, because even Nina Haas's character, like, at one point says, hey, I thought we were in this together, right. right? Like, we were working together to get you where you're at, but also, like, I'm basically the... I don't know anything about classical music, so I apologize, I don't know any terms, but, like, she's the head of her section, but also it seems like she's the head of the players, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The players. so she's, she's, like, first chair in the orchestra. Yeah, there you and, go. Mm-hmm. And she's also, like, I guess, the second director under Lydia, right? Like, Mm -hmm. in charge of, like, the placement for all the musicians and everything. Yeah, she also... What's her wife's name? Sharon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sharon. Uh, Yeah, Sharon. She, I believe, also knows more than she lets on, right? Because she all but says, Uh, like, you know, I can forgive a lot of things that you do, but the straw that's breaking the camel's back is that you not confiding in me with Mm -hmm. these allegations that you slept with Krista and then she killed herself and like I just know nothing about this right Mm -hmm. she knows about these things she accepts those things but the thing that she can't forgive is that Lydia won't talk to her and like confide in her her problems which affects like their livelihoods and like raising their child together Mm -hmm. right so I think that's also very interesting Uh, and another great little monologue from Nina Haas too but then I was gonna say like she's also a character once the shit hits the fan like she abandons Lydia also right yeah yeah like everyone sure. in her life that is around her like you said once that straw is broken and like the camel's back it's just like a flood that like everyone just leaves right everyone is mm-hmm. able to kind of escape the situation with Lydia and like just kind of abandon her so if you want to talk about ambiguity you guys want to talk about like the big scene that everyone's discussing the Juilliard scene yeah the one with the students yeah the one with the students okay do you want to recap the scene a little bit? Just uh... yeah. So she's guest teaching a class at Juilliard, and there's a student there. He has some African heritage, and he has no interest really in like discussing the classical masters. I think it's Bach that he says he Bach, doesn't want to be yeah. so interested in mm-hmm. uh, because of like it's like oh you know like what does he have to say to us today? He's just like an old dead white guy. Like he doesn't speak to anything that's going on uh, today. Like and he's problematic because he had so many children with however many different women or whatever, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, as a BIPOC pansexual, I cannot relate to mm-hmm. Bach, you know? Which, yeah, Lydia just doesn't have any time for it. And she kind of really goes at him pretty hard. And I guess, like, eventually she pushes him so hard he walks out of the class. Yeah, he calls her a bitch. What is it that she does at the end that pushes him over the edge? Okay, so she begins saying, but you see, the problem with enrolling yourself as an ultrasonic epistemic dissident is that if Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth, country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. Don't be so eager to be offended. The narcissism of small differences leads to the most boring conformity. I guess Edgar Verres is okay. 
I mean, no, like, Arcana, anyway. Oh, well, then you must be aware that Verez once famously stated that jazz was a Negro product exploited by the Jews. Didn't stop Jerry Goldsmith from ripping him off for his Planet of the Apes score. It's kind of a perfect insult, don't you think? But you see, the problem with enrolling yourself as an ultrasonic epistemic dissident is that if Bach's talent can be reduced to his gender, birth, country, religion, sexuality, and so on, then so can yours. She goes on to, like, dismantle him and saying, like, oh, if you're conducting in front of the panel at Juilliard, do you want them to evaluate your work based on your skill or based upon your identity, right? And then Max, he's like, you're a fucking bitch. All right, everyone. Using Max's criteria, let's consider Max's thing. In this case, Anna... Now, can we agree on two pieces of observation? One, that Anna was born in Iceland, and two, that she is, in a Waldorf teacher kind of way, a super hot young woman. Show of hands. All right, now let's turn our gaze back to the piano bench up there and see if we can square how any of those things possibly relate to the person we see seated before us. Where are you going? You're a fucking bitch. And you are a robot. I mean, unfortunately, the architect of your soul appears to be social media. You want to dance the mask, you must service the composer. You got to sublimate yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. You must, in fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. That's a great line. It is a great line. So I think the fascinating thing is that a bunch of conservatives saw this scene and they were like, yeah, hell yeah, Kate Planchette uh, as Lydia Tarr, mm. like dismantling cancel culture and like the woke hive mind or whatever, you know? Um, but like, that's only if you watch this scene and none of the other parts of this movie, right? I do think the movie does come down firmly on the side of Lydia Tarr 1 and Max 0, right? Yes. Like, I do think that in this scene, at least, she definitely takes the point here. Yes, but also what I want to say about that is, I think on the surface, it does come on the side of Lydia, but I think it's also saying something about the power dynamics between them, because I feel like there is like an articulate and cogent way for Max to open up like an actual debate with Tar here, but because of like the power dynamic between them, like he can't, and like how nervous he is and how scared he is. So this whole scene is shot in one take. I don't know if you guys know, yes. this is a wonder, mm-hmm. insane wonder for Kate yeah, Blanchett. Insane. Just looking at how much dialogue she has to deliver, and it keeps focusing on his like shaking leg, and I think for a good reason too. But yeah. Tar's argument here is a sound one. I think listening to her, I myself, I'm like, okay, well, she makes some really good points, you know, as to like separating art from artist. I think a lot of people just really gravitate towards this scene because. There are definitely people who see things from Max's point of view, and there's definitely people who see things from Lydia's point of view, right? So, like, I think this is, like, one of those Rorschach tests. Uh, But Although, I do agree that Max is kind of written as, like, a nothing, and by design. What about um, someone who's not written as nothing? What about Olga? Olga's the new sort of uh, target in Lydia Tarr's crosshairs. She's a cellist, I guess, a new cellist in the Berlin Orchestra. 
And so Lydia Tard is because she's so attracted to this young girl, she uses her pull in the orchestra to get her an audition for a solo mm-hmm. that like she typically wouldn't be able to obtain. Yeah. And she does win the position on her merits, right? But it's sort of rigged in that like the piece that Lydia Tar chooses and the way she goes about it, it you know, tips the scales in her favor, right? Mm-hmm. I think does she also tip her like I think she does something else with the the scoring as well. But in any case, I, I think there's you're supposed to both understand that this is an immensely talented player, but that, you know, Lydia Tar is also up to her old shenanigans. She's using her yeah. power to make this thing happen. Well, the first selection, because there's two rounds of selections. The first, she bases yeah. it on her shoes. Yeah. She pays attention to what shoes she's wearing just because of how attracted she is to Olga. So that first round, it goes to her just because she can see. It's like a blind audition. You she can't see. She knows who it is, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. she knows who it is based on her like green boots or whatever or whatever it is she's wearing. And the second time, it's more on like the piece that she chooses. And the first chair cellist is like, uh, this is highly unorthodox, but uh, you do you. Whatever you want, right? Um, right, it's just yeah. how much sway that Tar has over the orchestra. Well, yeah, and I kind of read it as her like co-signing it. Like, I think she knows what's happening here, right? And it's like, really, you think it was a tacit? Um, I didn't read it that way. I thought it was more like I'm not going to fight against this because I know when I'm outmatched. But this is really fucked up, and you should have just given this to me. Like, it's not the kind of position that's normally auditioned for. And so, like, I'm kind of annoyed that you're doing this, right? Like, she didn't seem like. Oh, Lydia Tarr off to her old act again, right? Yeah, yeah. Which mm-hmm. is kind of shocked and annoyed. She wasn't like, oh, she always pulls this bullshit or whatever. How I read it was that the original cellist was a little shocked. Yes. But then Sharon's like, oh, yes. no, I mean, Sharon that's totally just, is like, yeah, <laughs> that's just the way she is. Like, well, I can't do anything to stop her, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do like the Olga character because it's introduced as this character that is almost like anti- the Lydia establishment, right? Like, it's almost like if Max had a little bit more gall and like more of a stance, you know, like he was the person who's like shaking his leg and super nervous and couldn't stand up for himself versus like Olga is very much this kind of the same person who's the neophyte, but also has her own opinions that don't seem to quite align entirely with Lydia and is able to fight her mm-hmm. in a way, right? Like, oh, you should order the cucumbers. The cucumbers are great. And she gets like this full-on steak meal or whatever that she eats. And then there's like the moment you want to go out and she's like, no, nah, I'm, I'm just going to stay. And then, you know, she sneaks away. Like, I do like that this character seems to be, and this is partially ambiguous, I think, planted there to, I don't know, take down Lydia or like, it's hard to say. I just think she's like a symbol of, uh, Lydia losing control of her life because yeah. everything is so manicured and constructed mm-hmm. around her that like, you know, anything that's out of the ordinary or like out of her own design, she gets like very flustered and you rarely see her like that, right? And the couple of examples are probably with Olga and how she just like bristles against what Lydia wants and then how she's like her own person. And like, I didn't catch this until my second viewing of the movie. But in the beginning, um, with the interview with Adam Gopnik, I don't remember what he asked her, but he asked her something. It was like a flattering question. And Lydia is like very, very thrown. And she like hesitates. She stumbles around her words. And and Adam Gopnik's like, oh, it seems like I've caught you a little off guard. Is it because you're like so humble and like self-effacing or whatever? 
it's not. It's because it wasn't in the script that Francesca wrote for him. Mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, because she's reciting it. it. Yeah, yeah, she's, she's reciting, reciting it. it, and that's not in the script, and that's what throws Lydia off, right? So, oh, like, anything that's not, like, part of her design, she just, like, cannot abide, you know? I think that's mm-hmm. very, very interesting. Going back to this Olga thing, like, there's the scene where she gets dropped off, and then Lydia, uh-huh. like, follows her to give her back her bear. But, like, clearly no one lives here, right? Like, this is not a place people live. Mm-hmm. There was this kind of, like, ambiguity and, like, kind of secret nature to this that also was, like, kind of very telling to me. I don't know. That's why, like, I'm getting this sense of she's some kind of plant. Like, she's there to try to take down Lydia. I didn't get the sense that she was a plant. I mean, I understand the senior talk, but it is weird that when Lydia just immediately loses her there. But I don't know if she's a plant. I do think she's more wary than uh, maybe some mm-hmm. of Lydia's earlier victims, maybe because she's been warned mm-hmm. by Francesca. And I think it's very funny that she completely, like, completely refuses her, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, she's just like, oh, yeah, I'm tired. I don't want to go out. And then she goes out without her. Yeah, she's, she's like, like fully oh. decked out in going out clothes, you know? Like, mm-hmm. like in this dress, and it's so funny. Lydia just watches her, like, leave the hotel, and she's like, what the fuck? And she's yeah. definitely a person that, like, is not used to being rebuffed that way, you know? And I think that's very, very funny. This movie is very funny, actually. Yeah, there's very dry humor in this. It is really funny. I mean, I think that's really funny. I think a lot of the humor, maybe this is a transition, like, to the ending, but, like, I was just cackling at all the things that happened oh at the God. end of this movie. Yeah, it was really funny. I love the scene where, like, she's still dressed up in her garb. She's ready to go out, take the stage, and then we find out that she wasn't meant to be there and, like, Mark Strong is there in her place. And she just pushes him aside and tries to take back her orchestra. But that was just, one, really hard to watch, but also, like, really hilarious. That she's just so desperate for this position. And, like, she thinks that her power can get her out of this. And her art can get her out of this. It's laughable. I love that misdirect. It's so fucking funny to me. Because I think any other director or any other filmmaker would make this, like, Oh, Lydia Tarr's last hurrah, right? She gets to make like one more barn burner performance and then she's canceled and she's destroyed forever. They won't even give her that. It's actually Elliot's show and she makes a complete fool of herself tackling and attacking him on stage. Um, I think that's just so funny. They won't even give her like the satisfaction of one last performance, which is what movies about like these geniuses tend to do, right? They get like one last big performance and it's like a big cinematic moment, but. There's none of that here. (laughs) Her life continues to kind of get destroyed. She goes back home and you see where she comes from. And presumably, like, that's her brother, maybe? Yeah, Yeah, that's her brother. Her brother, right, yeah. He even says something like, oh, you're hiding out here. It's almost like a place where she only comes when she needs to, like, escape. Even beyond her, like, second apartment, right, that she has. Yeah. Well, Lydia's whole life is just completely manufactured, right? And, like... Yeah. When you're watching the movie, it's like, oh, she's like vaguely European. Um, Lydia Tarr, it's got like the accent mark on it. But then like this scene, it's just so funny because like she's from Staten Island and her name is Linda Tarr, right? T-A-R-R. Linda, yeah. Yeah. So everything about her is just completely – she makes her own myth, right? And I mean there's something impressive about that. Absolutely. And I think that's – part of her magnetism and her mystique 
And part of it's like also Kate Blanchett's performance. Like you just can't take your eyes off of her. It just makes these reveals even funnier. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then like after this moment, her career takes another turn, right? It seems like she's able to get another lead conductor job, right? Somewhere in like Southeast Asia. Uh And (laughs) the funniest thing is that she takes it very serious, right? She like goes to this orchestra is like, Let's talk about why we're doing this. Let's talk about the message of this piece. And then at the end, we find out the orchestra that she is leading is just for this video game convention with a bunch of cosplayers. And I love this ending and I found it so hilarious. Dude, it's the funniest ending of the year. It is so fucking funny. (laughs) It's so mean. It's not just so some generic video game it's monster hunter (laughs) it's like a real Mm -hmm. franchise which i think is so fucking funny a lot of people are like oh this is like fucking mean to video games it's like not considered like art or whatever i actually think like this is more of an indictment of like lydia tar's character to her this is like the lowest of the low right Mm. in her eyes you can't get much lower or like anti-art that making the score for a video game but there's like nothing wrong with that really harry gregson williams is like a prolific film scorer and then he also makes great music for video games too there's no shame in that but i feel like in her eyes it's like oh this is embarrassing yeah and it's funny that you point out it's like monster hunter which is like one of the biggest games right like it's it's a huge franchise so it's not like it's just some like you're saying no named game right video game that yeah 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 there's a little bit of prestige there right yeah i thought it was really funny and i guess i read at face value that this was really a just like the epitome of a fall from grace and so i just thought it was really funny and she went from you know i don't know head of the berlin orchestra Mahler's fifth to Monster Hunter. I mean, the funniest thing to me was just like the seriousness of what she was taking this assignment, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the idea she was like, oh, let's talk about this piece before we start playing it. And then you find out it's like a bunch of cosplayers are watching her like perform this piece, right? So I thought that was pretty funny. Such a great reveal panning into the audience and they're all dressed like Monster Hunters. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's really Todd good. Todd Field must have been like cackling when he wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> You must have had a ball writing that scene. Yeah. 16 years to figure out the perfect video game to score. (laughs) (laughs) They sampled Blair Witch in this movie, which I thought was fucking hilarious, too. It's kind of fucking sad that I noticed it. (laughs) I didn't catch this. I did not catch it either. When she's jogging and she hears the screams, you remember that? Yeah. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh, The scream is from the ending of the Blair Witch Project. And they borrowed the scream from that movie. It's a very distinct scream. So I was like, I think that's Blair Witch. And I was right. (laughs) That's wild. It's so fucking funny. Yeah. Jeff would know. Jeff would know. To wrap up this conversation about this movie, I mean, like, is she our front runner for best actress? Like, is she, based on what we've seen this year, the person you guys think is going to win? I think a lot of people are like, oh, Michelle Yeoh, but like, I'm sorry. I don't think Michelle Yeoh holds a candle to Kate Blanchett in this. As good as Michelle Yeoh mm-hmm. is in uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once, Kate Blanchett is like the one to beat for sure. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I think Nina Haas is like, I don't really follow awards chatter too much, but mm-hmm. I think there's some buzz around Nina Haas too as supporting, as there should be, because she's supporting. Yeah. very, very good as uh, as Sharon. 
I don't know about Michelle Williams. I feel like that's category fraud. She's really supporting. Mm. But, I mean, she's good in The Fablemans, too. She's very good in The Fablemans. But I think pure performance-wise, Kate Blanchett is definitely the one to beat, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think from what we've seen this year, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this one could run all the way to the end with, with her, at least for Best Actress. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I mean, it's what about, Best Picture. I was going to say, uh, my next question, Best Picture. Nah, I don't think so. I think there's stuff I like better and there's stuff that – I think there's, there's things that I enjoyed and things I think that were better. I mean, it's in the running. Like, it's not like it's ridiculous or anything. It's not my pick. I think it definitely could be – it's, it's definitely in that conversation, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if there's 10 movies that could be nominated, I think this will be nominated. I don't know. For sure. I think this definitely is in the conversation. Yeah, I just don't know if it's going to win. Not to say I don't want it to win. Like, I wouldn't be upset if it won. It's really hard. I haven't seen everything yet. Is this your number one so far, Derek? Like, my favorite movie of the year? Yeah. No, no. It's still not my favorite movie of the year. Mm. But it's pretty high up. I really, really do love this movie. Would it be your best picture pick? To be more objective, like, thinking about awards, like, bait and awards stuff. Yes, I think it could be definitely a front runner for a best picture, mm. but we'll see. What's your favorite, Derek? I don't want to give that away yet. Come on. Okay, I was gonna say, <laughs> oh, no, I, <laughs> we're so soon to the end of the year. I know. I'm starting. I'm just. I'm starting <laughs> to think about this stuff and like kind of put a list together and revisit it as we watch the rest of these, mm. like you know, the rest of these contenders. But we can talk about it off air. It's fine. <laughs> Not everything I mean, has to be content. There's a lot of buzz around a bunch of movies that are angling for best picture i mean do you want to know what like people are saying are the biggest contenders so the fablemans everything everywhere all at once tar women talking triangle of sadness glass onion empire Glass onion really i guess so people are talking about glass onion i like glass onion a lot but there's no tar yeah i I actually think tar mm -hmm. is up there tar is definitely up there it's definitely like academy style just like the Fablemans is. I think Everything Everywhere All at Once is kind of a long shot. Although it might, because there's a lot of buzz around it. It doesn't seem like it's their wheelhouse, though, right? It's definitely not, because they definitely frown upon sci-fi movies. It's and, genre. It's uh, genre. Yeah, genre yeah. stuff, yeah. Um, Banshees, obviously. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We're getting into that season, right, where we can have a little bit more of these talks. Uh, like Amir's saying, I think it'd be interesting like, over the next month and leading up to our you know, year-end best-of list for each of us to kind of revisit, like, hey, do we think this is going to make it into your top tens, or do you think it's going to go all the way to the Oscars? So, for the movies that we've covered on the pod that are contenders, how would you rank them between Banshee's Decision to Leave and Tar? At least for me, Tar is number one. Mm. I know that. When it comes to Decision and Banshee's, oh, I might have to give it to... Oh, that one's hard. Maybe decision. <laughs> At the moment, probably decision over Banshees. I think I would go Banshees Tar decision just in mm. terms of – I liked Banshees plenty. It's dark and kind of hard. To watch. Like, it's not a super enjoyable experience, but I'm never going to forget those fucking fingers, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like mm-hmm. the indelible image is what art is supposed to do. So like – I think Banshee's got to get the nod for that. Just like, I'm not going to forget that. Mm. Tar has the blistering Kate Blanchett performance. But like I said, uh, for me, it was a little soggy in the middle. Uh, I mean, oh, and, and the screenplay's like phenomenal in this as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Decision to Leave. I would say it's probably the one I enjoyed the most. And it's technically very fun. Yeah. 
the craft on that is really good. Yeah. You know what it is? It's a bit slight. It's fun mm. and really technically well done, but I don't think it sticks in the mind or to the ribs, you know? Oh, I don't know. That ending is pretty devastating, though. Pretty brutal. I, it's, I think it's not as brutal as some of his other movies. Maybe I'm too used to the... Yeah, okay. If you're talking about, like, Park Chan-wook... Maybe I'm too used to, like, his other style. Yeah, but even comparing it to the other movies that we're just talking about, Tar and uh, Banshees, I yeah, think yeah. those two are more memorable. I did really like Decision to Leave, too. That's pretty close with Tar in two and three. I kind of regret asking the question because top one, two, three of the year, like, it's splitting hairs, right? I think for, for sure. me, it's mm-hmm. Banshee's decision to leave and Tar. How much of a difference is between those rankings is, like, not much at all. I think they're all mm-hmm. excellent. I'll say sometimes it is a big difference, though. It's not always splitting hairs. Yeah, sometimes it is. Oh, no, for I sure. I agree with you. I, I think with in these this three, specific it is. case, yes. I yeah. think in this specific instance, it is. I think sometimes it's a clear number one. Um, like, I think last year I had a clear number one. Yeah, okay. And okay. then there was, like, a gap. Fair, fair. You know? What was your number one last year again? <laughs> I'm not even podcasting with you anymore. You're fucking voted off the island. <laughs> it was the same as my number oh, one. Oh, God, I don't remember now. It's to ten. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Dude, the years get jumbled, man. Still haven't seen Avatar yet. Who knows? That might be our number one. <laughs> oh, you never know. All right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to end it. Uh, if you guys have nothing else, uh, I think that will conclude this week's episode. Jeff, where can people find more of your work? You can find me on my blog at strangeharbors.com. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Strange Harbors. What about you guys? You can find me plotting Derek's downfall because he didn't remember the top movie of last year. <laughs> what about you, Derek? You can find me at the World's OK Photos and Screen Agents Guild on Instagram. But if you like this podcast, the easiest way to support our podcast is to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any of the other popular podcast apps. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do us a favor and give us a great rating. It really helps to get our podcast out to more people. Yeah, if any of your questions, comments, suggestions on our episode on TAR, feel free to shoot us an email at jeff at strangeharbors.com. We like getting listener mail. Sometimes we read it on the pod. So with that, we will conclude this week's episode, and we will see you guys next week. See you next week, everybody. See you guys then.